The following is my conversation with Andrew Gallimo, a computational neurobiologist, pharmacologist, chemist, and writer who has been interested in the neural basis of psychedelic drug action for many years and is the author of a number of articles and research papers on the powerful psychedelic drug DMT and its effects on the brain and consciousness. In 2015, he collaborated with DMT pioneer Rick Strassman, author of DMT, The Spirit Molecule, to develop a pharmacokinetic model of DMT as the basis of a target-controlled intravenous infusion protocol for extended journeys in the bizarre worlds to which DMT gates access. His current interest focuses on DMT and other psychedelic molecules as tools for gating access to otherwise inaccessible subjective worlds, their neuroscientific underpinning, and their possible ontological and metaphysical implications. Hi, Andrew. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. How are you doing? I am good, too. Uh, let's just start from right from the beginning. What got you interested in the field of study that you are in right now? I know this is like a very broad question. I wanted to go you to go in as much detail as possible. Um, well, I was so I'm I'm I've been writing about psychedelics and particularly DMT for oh twenty years maybe. But I was I guess when I was a student, like high school student, I first became interested in 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 psychedelics as. Uh, kind of a teenager, um, getting interested in altered states of consciousness and slightly weird. I was always interested in um, kind of to some concern from my parents, um, interested in kind of some quite strange topics when I was very young. So I was interested in the occult and ghosts and werewolves and vampires and um, Ouija boards and things like this. So I, I got into some trouble when I was very young at school for, you know, bringing in Ouija boards and things. And um, so I've always been interested in strange things. And when I became a teenager, um, as many teenagers do, they they get interested in in drugs a little bit. Um, and for me, it took I took a, an academic or an intellectual interest in them. So I, I knew really from um, the point of finishing high school that I wanted to study uh, the effects of drugs on the brain and on uh, consciousness. Um, so that's kind of where it started. Um, and then I went to university and I studied chemistry and pharmacology and kind of developed my interest in, in that over time. And, and that's kind of just blossomed really. Um, I ended a PhD in biochemistry, um, then shifted over to neuroscience for one of my postdocs um, about 14 years ago now. Um, and that's when I really started writing a lot and, and speaking more publicly about my ideas that I'd been developing over, uh, over the, the prior decade. Um, and yeah, and kind of here we are now. So I left, I moved to Japan in 2015 to do a postdoc in computational neuroscience, where I studied um, mechanism, molecular mechanisms, synaptic plasticity in the brain. So how do neurons speak to each other? How do strengths of neurons, um, strength of connection between neurons change over time? So I was doing molecular modeling of that. Um, but now I've completely left. I've moved from Okinawa in the south of Japan to Tokyo, where I am now, where I, I spend all my time thinking and, and writing and trying to scrape a living uh, doing that. So <laughs> this is where we are. First of all, why Japan? Um, uh, kind of fortuitous, really. I, I was working, um, I was finishing up a brief postdoc in Oxford in the UK, obviously, and my contract ended and I needed a job. And there happened to be a position, a postdoctoral uh, fellowship opening in Japan, in Okinawa, um, which was um, 
for basically the same kind of work that I'd been doing um, at Oxford University. So it seemed, and I, since I was a teenager, for some reason, I can't explain why. So please don't ask. I don't really know. But I wanted to live in Japan since I was a teenager. But I don't really understand the reason. I tried to learn Japanese when I was a sort of 15 years old, but that didn't work out very well at, at that time. Um, uh, and largely forgot about that ambition until this opportunity came up. And I kind of thought, okay, maybe I can do this. Why not? I had no strings or anything kind of anchoring me uh, to the UK. So I thought, right, why not? This is the opportunity. So I applied for the position and uh, was accepted, got the job pretty quickly. And within a couple of months, I was landing uh, at the airport in Okinawa and embarking on a new life in, in Japan. And I've been here ever since. That was eight years ago now, just over. Uh, and yeah, don't plan on leaving anytime soon, or at all, actually. <laughs> you, your work, like you know, has moved around in the field of neuroscience, of pharmacology, and chemistry. Like, mm. do you feel like there's a connection and intersection between all of this in your research, or do you feel like they're in their own silos, uh, working like you know, it, there's no connection or whatsoever, or is it just like okay, I know this happened, you got interested in these fields, but has mm. has that bled into your research altogether, or they are again very separate worlds? No, I think they're very well connected. In fact, I think to really understand psychedelics, you have to you have to have some foundation in chemistry and in pharmacology and in neuroscience. I mean, this is a multidisciplinary. Uh, topic. You're talking about molecules, obviously, uh, that are interacting with receptors. Um, so there, immediately, you've got the chemistry and the pharmacology, um, and these affect the way that neurons behave, and ultimately, this causes changes in the way that neurons communicate with each other and the, the patterns of information that are instantiated across the cortex you know, in the brain. So um, I think to really deeply understand how psychedelics are working, one has to have uh, a foundation, I think, of those. So it's certainly not a coincidence. It was a deliberate um, shift for me from biochemistry to a very low level, a molecular, subcellular level uh, towards neuroscience. That wasn't kind of random. It was, it was a conscious decision that this wasn't um, something that was kind of missing from my repertoire if you know, academic repertoire was the neuroscience so so yeah i think it's um um these are equally important aspects i think of the whole um psychedelic science um discipline you've been a part of a paper for the continuous infusion of dmt uh, mm. And the first, I think the first uh, test that was done, which was accomplished and was a positive one, which was with four volunteers. Can you talk about the implications and the understanding of the, uh, from those papers and how it has evolved or, or does it still stay the same in, as we stand today? So the, the, so this DMTX, this continuous infusion of DMT, um, the idea being that you can Rather, so normally when you administer DMT, you use what's called a bolus injection. So all the drug goes in within sort of 30 seconds and it rises in the brain. It reaches a very brief plateau over a couple of minutes and then it falls exponentially. Um, so it's a very quick experience, five to 10 minutes. Um, so I wrote a paper with Rick Strassman, uh, who did the, the largest study of, uh, of DMT in human volunteers back in the 90s. Um, uh, and we wrote a paper, we got this model, which would allow you to um, stabilize the DMT in the brain using continuous intravenous infusion protocol um, informed by a pharmacokinetic model. Um, the idea being that you could safely extend the DMT state for, you know, as long as you want. Uh, but that was just a model. It was a kind of a proof of principle paper. Um, but a number of groups now have kind of picked up the mantle and Imperial College London, who's one of the world's, if not the world's leading psychedelic research group, um, 
have kind of taken this the fur the furthest and that they have successfully um implemented this technology if you like in actually 11 volunteers we spoke to four in in this live stream yesterday uh but there are 11 volunteers seven seven men and four women and they all received 30 minute infusions at various dose levels so i think there are four different dose levels from low to high and what they were able to demonstrate remarkably was that you can as we hoped you can actually stabilize the brain levels or stabilize the the experience um so, so kind of hold somebody within that uh intense psychedelic state for um the 30 minutes with without any uh problems without any safety issues no issues with cardiovascular issues or or anxiety or or any other kind of problem so it, it seems to be very safe and well tolerated and in fact the a paper just came out literally in the last day or so from Switzerland um Matthias uh, Lichty's group who uh, who have been able to extend this for 90 minutes and maintain stable um, subjective effects. So the, I think the implications of this are, are quite dramatic in that um, this technology could be used to, for much more detailed and thorough explorations of this remarkable state of consciousness, but also could be useful in, in clinical applications where you want to... Um, um, use psychedelics for treatment of psycho uh, psychological conditions such as anxiety or depression or post post traumatic stress disorder that kind of thing and from your understanding how like you know how does the brain generate these uh, subjective so called subjective experiences and like what's your research show like you said like you know you want to have these long uh, uh, long extended dmt states uh, and their use could be for like working on depression and be a PTSD and these uh, you know so-called conscious symptoms, something that is related to the uh, neural side of ourselves. Uh, is that the only reason why we want to like you know tap into these long extended DMT or like conscious states, subconscious states? The the DMT state is probably the most. Um, astonishing state of consciousness that a human can experience that is an inordinately complex alternate reality. I mean, that's basically what it is. You are hurtled into a, uh, a completely novel domain that has no relationship whatsoever to this world, this normal waking world, and it is filled with um, what appear to be extremely intelligent um highly complex and highly advanced technologically and cognitively advanced beings um, and we don't really understand why that is possible um, why is it possible to perturb the brain with this very simple relatively simple plant alkaloid that occurs widely in nature uh, and um generate these effects on the brain and on consciousness we don't understand why that is possible um the brain is always constructing your brain evolved to construct a model of reality a model of the environment um this is the the world that you live within all of us do we all live within a uh, a world model that is being constructed continuously by the brain but as far as we're aware the brain only evolved to construct one type of model, and that's the environment model, of course, the, the model that allows you to navigate uh, and thrive and reproduce and survive and etc. within the environment. So it's quite astonishing, um, to say the least, that when you perturb the brain with this molecule, the brain is suddenly capable of constructing, because that's what it's doing, it's constructing a new model um, and we don't really understand why. How was the brain? What, how did the brain learn, if you like, to construct these alternate models of reality? Um, there's no reason why it ought to do so. Uh, any more than, you know, if a, a small British child who only speaks English suddenly started speaking fluent Hindi or something, you would be quite astonished. 
uh, you would go, well, how did that happen? You know, how did you learn to speak this other language? Uh, and it's kind of like that, but I think even more dramatic um, than that. Um, so that's why I think this, it's, this is certainly a, a worthwhile um, state of consciousness to study. But it is, as I said before, limited normally by this very brief experience. You're, you're thrust into this bizarre domain, shocked, horrified, appalled, uh, disorientated. Um, uh, and you, you really don't have much of a chance to get your bearings and orient yourself within the space to actually perform any kind of meat exploration or analysis of the space. Um, so this infusion technology um, should allow one to do that because you can, as the, these recent results have demonstrated, the state does stabilize over time uh, and you are much better able to orient yourself and navigate within the space. So this opens up a whole new field of inquiry, in my opinion, whereby people can be induced into the state, held there, and then perhaps even delivering it information in real time back to the team waiting on the outside about the structure and the content of the space, establishing communication with whatever these beings are within the space. Um, it's like an entirely new world that we have discovered um, and we're just beginning to think about how we might try to make sense of it and to perform more detailed explorations and even experiments within the space. So as of now, what is our understanding of these beings in these, this space? Uh, is its uh, interpretation of our subconscious, it's like displaying itself in these altered states? Or there's also a lot of people who mentioned that these are like, you know, we are tapping into a different dimension completely. People have all sorts of opinions. Where do you stand? Where, where, where does the research stand? So the short answer is we don't know. Uh, as you say, there are a number of possible explanations. I certainly don't um, subscribe to any particular one. I, I very much have an open mind. Some people are much more opinionated in that they will say, oh, it's definitely, um, you know, you're tapping into the collective unconscious. It's your own uh, ego revealing itself or other aspects of your mind that's revealing itself to you. I'm not convinced by that. Um, there's the, the the structures and the the beings that you encounter within this DMT space. They don't seem usually like kind of ancestral archetypal structures. They tend to be completely alien, completely unrelated to the human condition. Um, whether modern or ancestral, um, which we would expect them, in my opinion, to be more like that, more related to, to the human, um, to the human condition, if they were bubbling up from collective archetypal structures. Um, we don't see that, um, which suggests they are possibly something else. Um, but that is, of course, a huge leap because it would require, if, if we really do think that we're dealing with some kind of, dare I say it, alien intelligence of some sort, this uproots all of our kind of fundamental ontological assumptions about what is and isn't possible uh, and our, of our relationship to uh, reality, really, and our, of our understanding of the, the basic structure of reality. I think that would have to be um altered to say the least uh, if we are to accept that we could be dealing with some other intelligence so the the jury is very much still out on this one um i don't um i keep i keep a very open mind on this i i refuse to rule out i certainly don't think it can be just brushed brushed off as simple hallucination because these are not simple hallucinations um nor do I think they can be neatly tucked, uh, pack, packaged away as, as archetypal structures from the collective unconscious either. Um, so that leaves us then with this kind of startling possibility that we could in fact be dealing with something far, far stranger uh, and far, far more difficult to comprehend and, and, and to get the grips with. Um, so that's 
this is the ultimate question that you're asking here. So I apologize, I can't give you a definitive answer. But the implications, I think, of this, the discovery of this new world and of these beings is, 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 is quite difficult to comprehend, actually. Um, it is uh, an astonishing molecule and an astonishing place that you're taken to when you uh, ingest it. And then speaking of like, you know, the walls that uh, you're taken to when you ingest it, let's go back to the four volunteers that, uh, with the paper yeah. that you worked on. What, uh, and you had a talk with them yesterday that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So where are they now? What are their, uh, like, how do, wh what are their thoughts now? How's it, how, how has like, you know, time like evolved what their, their like, you know, results were, uh, has it changed? Did they change their lives in any uh, way, any aspects? Uh, was it like a substantially mm -hmm. life transforming experience for them? Yes, I mean, these subjects, this was a pilot study. So um, it was really to assess the safety and tolerability of this technology. So all of the subjects had extensive experience with DMT, first of all. So they're very kind of familiar uh, with DMT experience, first of all. Um, but what was um, kind of remarkable about this extended state was that they more so than the normal DMT state, what they, or some of them at least, the ones we were able to speak to, noticed was that the, there was a, a kind of a greater multiplicity of experience. So they, they felt like they were progressing deeper and deeper and deeper uh, through the space over time, uh, much more than you get with a normal mode of administration, which, as I said, is only just a few minutes. Um, so they're able to move through this multitude of different realms. So this is a vast, incomprehensibly vast space that you are entering, extremely rich, extremely diverse, both in terms of its structure and its content and its occupants. Um, um so that was kind of startling to them i think that they, there was so much more to explore than they even they realized um but also many of the subjects uh, or some of the subjects that we spoke to uh, also were meeting the same beings the same entities in multiple sessions so they'd give them a message they'd speak to them um, and then the following session which might be a couple of weeks later they go back they'd find themselves in the same place and they would find themselves meeting the same entity uh, as well and the also what was quite reassuring from my perspective is there was no sense of animosity or disapproval if you like, from these entities. This is a new technology in a way. Um, so there was some concern that perhaps these beings wouldn't appreciate the fact that we have intruded in their realm for much longer than most people do. But actually, um, they seemed quite happy, quite welcoming uh, and eager, in many cases, eager to communicate, um, to show things right this is a very common experience that people are shown things messages screens with complex symbols on things like this but unfortunately um uh, as as it currently stands we're not able to uh, make sense of these messages they, they seem to be um communicating in, in a language that is just way beyond anything that humans have ever had to deal with um, it's kind of like that movie Arrival. Have you seen that movie Arrival? Uh, yeah, so you know you have this this very strange circular language that they had there. Um, so it's kind of like that, and that you're dealing with a an, an intelligence that's way beyond human intelligence, uh, and they are really keen, really eager to communicate and to to, to express messages. But um, we just we're not at the level yet where we can actually make sense of these messages so that's another thing that we need to focus on is um, how do we stabilize this two-way communication and how do we get that information out in real time from the t space back to 
people waiting on the outside and there could be linguists and anthropologists and mathematicians and these kind of specialists who will be able to devise experiments that could be performed in the space you know what kind of structures are seeing you know what is their form what is their relationship and then these mathematicians or linguists on the outside would, would receive that information and hopefully kind of work to interpret it um so yeah so lots of possibilities we're just really dipping our toes in the water here 30 minute infusion it's still relatively short um compared to what what would be possible which could be hours and hours or even days <laughs> Speaking of uh, not being able to comprehend what these states of consciousness are able to like communicate with us, we don't even understand what like what is being told in a way. What are mm. the like challenges and or limitations have you encountered in your research, uh, and like how are you working towards addressing them? Limitations? Did you say sorry? Yes. Um, well, I mean, so I'm kind of out of. The academy, so I'm not affiliated with the university, though I kind of work entirely. Um, um, so I leave kind of the the technicalities up to the the groups that are actually doing DMT X. Um, so always with this kind of work, the initial the initial study is is always the most difficult one um, because you don't know. Well, first of all, you have to get approval to do these kind of studies, uh, and that can be difficult. But for groups like the Imperial College team, who have extensive experience doing human studies with psychedelics, that's not so much of an issue. Other groups face much more uh, difficulty there, many more obstacles um, in terms of licensing and getting approval from the relevant bodies, that kind of thing. Um, then there's the issue of, well, is it going to be safe? Are people going to start freaking out or, or is their blood pressure going to go through the roof or, um, you know, are they going to have uncontrollable anxiety or these kind of things? Um, so certainly the biggest kind of hurdle to get over is that first study. Is it safe? Is it tolerable? Uh, is it, does it work? Um, Fortunately, all of these answers have been answered in the affirmative. So it is safe, it is tolerable. All of the subjects were able to deal with the, the various dose regimes that were, that were given. Um, they were all able to be induced into this stable state. Their anxiety levels were quite high at the beginning, but then dropped down. Um, so there's not, there isn't increasing anxiety or fear or panic or anything like that throughout the experience um, when it is stable. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, this is, you know, a huge positive result from, from these studies. And what comes next will depend upon the Imperial College team and this, this team in Switzerland as well that's working on it, Matthias Leakti's team. Um, but now that we have these first studies out, I think um, it's simply a matter of replicating them and extending. How far can we push this? Um, is there an issue with tolerance over time? So does will the effects of the drug uh, diminish over much longer infusion? There's no real um, solid evidence for that um, that you need to uh, you know increasingly doses over time to actually maintain the same state there might be some small amount of tolerance but I'm not really convinced by that um, so it seems that this could be extended for several hours um, how um, how a subject would deal with being in this for five six hours um, and then returning so there's this is an issue uh, once if you're when you thoroughly kind of integrated and embedded within this alter, this extremely bizarre alternate reality the question then is is there going to be an issue with reintegration back into the normal waking world that could be an issue um, 30 minutes doesn't seem to be a problem 90 minutes also doesn't seem to be a problem uh, but over many hours you might find that people lose any sense of ever having been a human i mean this uh, be completely embedded within this alien reality uh, and then suddenly you're coming back out and you you have to kind of 
remember who you are. Um, so, so that might be a, another obstacle to get over is how you reintegrate people back into this reality after much more extended experiences. Um, but that's, that's for the future, I think. Um, those are the kind of things that people need to think about. But as, we, as things stand with the current state of the art, um, there doesn't seem to be any major issues with, with these extended infusion techniques. What are the uh, ethical considerations do you believe researchers should like you know keep in mind studying psychedelic substances and its effects? Well, of course, and somebody who has never experienced DMT at all shouldn't be obviously put under these extended state infusions, probably, certainly not at the higher dose levels. Uh, I think it's important for subjects to be acquainted, at least, with, with the, the, the kind of experience they're going to have before. Um, it's a bit like, you know, if you are a diver, you wouldn't be sent to the bottom of the ocean on a, some sort of deep sea dive unless you had extensive open water experience. Um, so it's kind of like that. Um, you You need to have subjects that are that are, that, are, that are to some degree well acquainted with the space and with the, the type of experience. Uh, and of course, all psychedelic experiences come with risks. Um, you are dramatically altering someone's consciousness and people can get into, although it's relatively rare, it seems, with DMT, can get into some difficult situations which might cause them problems. Um, one benefit, actually, of BMT is that it is because it's so fast acting and very rapidly metabolized you can bring someone into the space and pull them out again if you stop the infusion they will come out of the space for a couple of minutes um, you can't do that with LSD or psilocybin from magic mushrooms uh, if you give some high dose of LSD they're in there um, in that experience for many hours if they get into a difficult situation um, then you have to work through that or you have to you know sedate them give them thorazine or um, some other sedative um, to calm them down so it, it's there's much more control I think with DMT that, which is a huge benefit for clinical use and that you can manipulate the level you can push them in um, to experience the state you can bring them into a more shallow condition where they can communicate perhaps with their therapist and you can push them back you ha it's it's a much more malleable and controllable uh, approach to using psychedelics for people that you know have you know, debilitating psychological conditions um, um, than something like LSD so I think it's, you're going to see in the future more and more groups picking up DMT as, a, as an alternative to things like LSD and psilocybin which, and MDMA, etc., which have, uh, have already shown big promise, I think, in uh, treating um, psychological conditions, mainly depression, but also PTSD. There are a number of misconceptions and misunderstandings about psychedelics and their effects. Mm. Uh, how do you, would you like to address them? How have you addressed them in the past? And what do you think the community is doing to like change the narrative? Well, I think, I mean, we've just come out of in the last decade or so, uh, what's often considered to be this kind of the, the psychedelic dark age. So in the 1960s, when psychedelics became extremely popular, particularly LSD, um, it was very, very widely used, and, and the authorities became extremely concerned. And there was, there was a lot of misinformation about psychedelics, that they were extremely dangerous, that if you took them off a building because you think you can fly, uh, that it was going to damage your problems. There have been a lot of myths that have been kind of propagated about psychedelics uh, and they've also been lumped together uh, we, we have a huge group of things we call drugs um, and so very kind of broad and overly broad term but people lump together psychedelics with things like 
heroin or cocaine or other kind of so-called drugs of abuse. Uh, and they're really not. These are completely non-addictive, in many cases anti-addictive. And they, they can be successfully used to treat people with things like alcoholism, for example. Um, they've shown great promise in that as well, various psychedelics. Um, so I think public perception of psychedelics has been um, marred by all of this misinformation uh, that's been propagated for decades, really. Uh, but we're just coming out of that now. Um, psychedelics are again becoming part of the mainstream. I think people are starting to realize that these are not just recreational um, drugs, but that these are, in fact, powerful psychotherapeutic uh, tools. And so what would you say, uh, you know, to the people who would say, what were the negative effects of the LSD experiments and the cases like, mm. you know, Charles Manson and how mm. like that really did, there were like mind control experiments done by the government and they did mm. not turn out very positively. And I mean, LSD is still considered a psychedelics, not something like a cocaine or let's say that that's mm. completely different class, but LSD yep. does fall under psychedelics. Yes. Yes. I mean, LSD is a psychedelic. Psilocybin is a psychedelic. So is DMT. And there are many now different psychedelics. Um, you know, as with all drugs, there's the possibility for use and misuse. You can say the same about guns. You can say the same about knives. Um, you can say the same about cars. You know, every, everything has the potential to be misused. Um, but psychedelics, they won't turn you into a mass murderer. Um, but there are always risks um, with, with taking psychedelics because it is such a profound, uh, uh, it does have such profound effects on consciousness. There are always going to be risks and, and obviously people with certain psychological conditions. So if you have a history of psychosis in your family, uh, then you're not going to be accepted into one of these um, DMT trials, for example. Um, but for the vast majority of people who take LSD or psilocybin, at least under controlled conditions, um, these are not really recreational in that they, people who take them need to be aware that these are going to be profound effects on consciousness that are going to last quite a long time. Certainly with LSD, we're talking, you know, eight, 10, 12 hours. Um, so set and setting um, that goes back from the 1960s that your your own set your own set your own state of mind your uh, and also your setting so your environment who are you with are you with that you are comfortable with and close to who can support you do you have a trip sitter as we call it so somebody who's there to support you who isn't taking the drug uh, that can help to guide you and help to um, supervise you so to speak so there are many ways that risk can be minimized with psychedelics, but never completely eliminated. Um, these are not, this is not caffeine, this is not nicotine, this is a, a powerful uh, conscious altering uh, agent. So there are always risks and they shouldn't be, um, it would be unwise and uh, irresponsible, I think, to suggest that these are risk-free uh, drugs, despite being extremely useful uh, and powerful and with great potential in the right hands and in the right people. Um, they are they're always inherent uh, risks with, with taking any drug and that applies to psychedelics as well. Um, when it comes to like, you know, be user discretion is advised. Uh, there is mm. this whole thing with like, there's a whole opening up of channels for using psychedelics uh, and it's uh, become more legal and not that much like, you know, uh, attention has been given to proper use and set and setting, like you mentioned, it's uh, available mm -hmm. a lot more easily now. And there are risks of it. Again, like you said, there are chances, there are risks as it's like almost like any tool, there are risks involved, but that not so much is been brought up in conversation when they're talking about legality, because they are pushing for it 
quickly do you feel like that can backfire mm. where we might go back into the dark ages of where people just don't use them or this like oh all drugs are bad let's not discuss it yeah that's always the danger that these things are there's clearly been an explosion of interest uh, in psychedelics in the last decade there's no doubt about it um they are becoming mainstream again and yes of course there's always a danger that their their benefits uh, are exaggerated uh, or expounded upon too quickly um and this is clearly we've 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 reached a great position now where they are becoming more and more accepted but all it will take is for one bad actor so to speak one poorly structured trial um um to set that back again uh, there are some negative results um so we're, we're not in a hurry i think there's there's lots of groups now working with psychedelics very very responsibly no evidence that in a in a controlled setting with proper support with proper screening of uh, subjects participants uh, patients um that there is uh, any significant risk with these drugs uh, or that it's higher than with other psychotherapeutic molecules um but yes we need to tread slowly and uh, carefully i think if you were to decide like you know how anyone would be able to approach it what would be the what would the checklist look like what would it go like you know make sure like like you said like you know if you have had like history of mental issues probably you know get yourself checked before you uh, like you know dabble in these substances what else would that checklist look mm. like yes uh, i mean i don't run human studies myself so that's always a comprehensive screening for anyone who's going for a so if you're talking about clinical trials actual clinical uses of of, of lsd obviously these are people that are that have psychological conditions so they are are anxious they do have history of trauma um so that's that's a given um but yes there will be family history uh, particularly for psychological other psychological conditions so if you give someone um who is uh, prone to uh, has some kind of propensity to developing psychosis they're uh, relatively young for example uh, and they've got a close family member who has would be a good example there then they would be excluded from the trial uh, but also other physical conditions so or neurological conditions so epilepsy for example so if you had a history of seizures um then you would probably be excluded from certainly this extended state DMT trial um but generally i think the idea is to 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 open up this this new therapeutic technology to as many people as possible um but and and the kind of the this the setting part of these protocols so the kind of environment the kind of people that are supporting the the patients has has uh, has um has progressed massively over the couple of decades um so we're position say in 1950s when LSD was first being trialed for uh, alcoholism uh, we know much more about its effects we know much more about its risks uh, and also relative risks in different um so yeah i think that's um yeah pretty much all i can say really i'm i'm sure each group um does these kind of studies they will have their own particular um checklist uh, and they're very careful you know, they don't want accidents to happen so to speak um so they're very careful in their screening to make sure that they're not going to be recruiting somebody who is has a much higher likelihood to encounter uh, significant negative uh, effects of course negative effects are always a risk anyway uh, but you can minimize that you can make it as safe as possible for as many people as possible um and so far this seems to be 
um, seems to be the case. There aren't reports of, of major adverse events in, in these new uh, LSD and psilocybin and now DMT trials. So I think we're whatever we're doing, we seem to be doing it right, I think. What role do altered state of consciousness play in the like you know the big picture of human evolution and cognition? There's a lot of like you know mm -hmm. the, what's it called the grand ape theory where you know people said that psychedelics was the reason why you know humans evolved to be who they are now. What are your thoughts mm -hmm. then? Where <laughs> where do you stand in this? Well, I think I mean we we normally exist within this. Um, very stable model of reality that we exist within it's it's it, it's it we are we have cognitive flexibility so basically the brain is always trying to maintain this balance between stability and rigidity you know everything looking as it should everything being stable and predictable uh, but also allowing for some flexibility so um, strict problem solving, for example, requires uh, quite rigid thought processes, one step to the next, one logical progression to the next. If I do this, and then this happens, then I do this, and then that happens, and I can form connections and everything's stable. This requires almost like crystalline thinking, if you like. But at the same time, if, if, if you take that to the extreme, you become, you don't become, you lose the potential for creativity, for novel ways of thinking um novel ways of solving a problem sometimes problems can't be solved through a simple rigid um step-by-step um, -step kind of thought process sometimes you need to think out of the box so to speak um and what psychedelics do is they they create a much more flexible state of consciousness the world literally becomes more fluid and dynamic and unstable um as do, as do your thought processes as well. Now, this is probably not um, uh, optimal for normal waking life all the time. Uh, you want to be able to think clearly and quickly and precisely. You want to see the world, things stable. Um, but there are occasions, I think, where you, you want to loosen that up. When you're in a safe environment, um, so you're not at risk of being eaten by a tiger or uh, attacked by some somebody um, when you're in a safe environment when you're not driving down the road whatever um, then this is an opportunity this is a time where you can enter into a much more flexible more fluid state of consciousness uh, which will allow you to uh, be much more creative and come up to with with much more novel solutions to uh, problems so i think psychedelics and these altered states of consciousness um, which are much more much less rigid and much more fluid and malleable uh, than normal waking consciousness I think is, is very important and could have had an important role in our evolution I mean we have clearly separated ourselves from the the rest of the animal kingdom we're clearly exceptional in, in many ways and no doubt that is largely to do with uh, our, our our cognitive abilities, our cognitive sophistication, and our ability to solve complex problems, and our ability to think uh, in novel ways. Um, so psychedelics, I think, can have a, a really important role in that. As long as they are um, taken when you are, you don't have to um, deal with the ongoing issues in, in, in the world and don't have you know to deal with problems that can arise suddenly and, and be able to think clearly and precisely uh, then i think these altered states of consciousness can be extremely useful so like you are mentioning that like you know this could be extremely useful to understand like adding that fluidity to create and improving on uh like you know the structured patterns of thinking that we already have which is so predictable and improving yeah. creativity so mm -hmm. we we've had this dark age where we did not use psychedelics and they were all shut down. Do you feel like now that it's back on track to a certain degree, uh, mm. the way we see the world and the way we adapt to the world and uh, tap into our consciousness is going to change and how will it change? How does the future look like? 
Um, question. Uh, I don't know if I can. It, it's it's a difficult one. I I mean certainly, although it referred to it as the psychedelic dark ages, there were certainly people underground that were still using these drugs. I mean, it was shut down academically, so people weren't in research institutions studying these drugs on humans at least. Certainly they still were in animals and in more kind of basic pharmacological studies. Um, but certainly people kind of on the fringes or secretly have been using psychedelics throughout this time. So very famous people. I mean, Nobel laureate uh, Carrie Mullis, who invented the PCR polymerase chain reaction, claimed that he was under the influence of LSD when he got the vision for how this this process for amplifying DNA uh, work. Uh, and that has was a revolutionary invention, a revolutionary discovery, which he quite rightly got the Nobel Prize. Um, so, uh, and Harry Mullet as well, uh, sorry, um, Francis Crick, um, who of course discovered the structure of DMA, DNA with, with, with Watson, Watson and Crick. Uh, he also claimed that he used LSD back uh, when he was researching the structure of DNA. So that might have, and of course that has one of the most important discoveries uh, in human history. Um, so I think, um, although there was something of a research dark age, I think psychedelics have had perhaps more of an influence um, than we might give them credit for. Um, but people just don't talk about it too much or often talk about it many years later when it's kind of safe to do so. Um, but yes, if it, you can imagine people using psychedelics now, well, now that they become much more acceptable, um, one, one can imagine using them deliberately for creativity. And that certainly still happens as well. You, know, you hear about architects or designers or engineers trying to solve some difficult problem that they're wrestling with, that their rigid um, logical state of mind can't act at the solution. They take a low dose of LSD, for example, and then go in a dark room for a few hours uh, and, and come out with not necessarily the perfect solution, but with many more ideas about how to solve the problem. Um, so, so any kind of human endeavor that requires um, problem solving, that in, re requires novelty and creativity, I mean, you can think of all, it's not, we're not just talking about the arts here, we're talking about mathematics. So solving or proving some theorem or developing some new branch of mathematics, you can imagine using something like LSD to, to visualize these, you know, geometric structures or something um, that you, you, you perhaps couldn't access in normal waking consciousness. So I think um, you're going to see more of that. You're going to see more people deliberately and intentionally uh, using psychedelics in their own particular field of, of, of work. W will that lead to a kind of an explosion, uh, a flourishing of human creativity? I would love to think so. Um, um, but that's just something we'll have to wait and see, I think. Can you discuss a little bit about the neurobiological mechanisms underlying psychedelic experiences and how they differ from other altered states? Yeah, so we again, we know a lot more now than we did uh, even a couple of decades ago in that we understand that uh, basically what psychedelics are doing broadly is uh, altering the, the structure and dynamics of your um of your world model um, but also your internal model your model of yourself your model of yourself in relationship to your environment and we know that psychedelics broadly they they create a much more fluid world model it's much more dynamic it's much less predictable uh it kind of breaks down these very rigid uh, structures that are instantiated in the cortex and and um this leads to a much more flexible state of consciousness as, as i said before uh, and we understand now that, that these molecules particularly the classic psychedelics are stimulating this type of serotonin receptor called the 5-ht2a receptor which is found very high densities 
in the deeper layers of the cortex. Uh, and it's actually by stimulating these receptors, it's actually increasing the activity, the excitability, we call it, of these particular subsets of neurons in the cortex, which allows them to communicate much more freely with each other. So they communicate more, they communicate more often. Uh, and basically this allows information to start flowing much more freely through the brain. So these entrenched, um, highly structured, rigid um, neural patterns start to break down and we start to see a much more fluid neural state. The brain seems to explore a larger number of states much more, uh, much more rapidly and much more freely. Um, and this, we think, is what causes this change in consciousness. And what is the relationship between psychedelics and spirituality? And how does this influence the future of research? Um, good question. Um, so, I mean, I don't focus so much on, I mean, spirituality, this is a very, um, it's a very difficult topic, a very broad topic. Uh, certainly psychedelics, many people do use do see psychedelics as having a spiritual uh, aspect there's no doubt about it many people see the altered this altered state of consciousness as being much more profound and insightful uh, and indeed spiritual than the normal waking consciousness many people believe or feel that they are uh, entering a much deeper uh, a more profound relationship with reality itself, um, particularly with high doses of things like LSD um, or DMT, people get the sense that they are they are becoming more aware of the unity of the uh, of reality, the unity of consciousness. That they are a um, a spiritual being, if you like. They are not just a uh, an ape, a bipedal ape, but that the, they are actually, in fact, uh, part of this um, universal, unified structure that we call reality. Um, and it, and of course, that these kind of uh, intuitions or uh, this kind of understanding is is not new. Um, you 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 look back at ancient traditions you look back at vedic or at buddhist traditions or hinduism or um you know name your spirituality and you will find these kind of intuitions that we are in fact part of um some unified um unified consciousness or unified being um uh, that we are all in a very deep and profound way connected to each other um, and psychedelics seem to catalyze that realization uh, for many people many people do use them actively uh, you know in, in combination with meditation with other spiritual practices with other spiritual rituals these are uh, for them um, these are very spiritual molecules these are not just drugs and of course if you go back to um, for example, you know, indigenous tribes in the Amazon, these, this is their religion. Ayahuasca, for example, which contains DMT, has been used for hundreds, if not thousands of years to communicate with their, their gods um, and you know, their spirits and uh, other uh, discarnate entities of the netherworlds. Um, so there's the, the connection between spirituality and psychedelics is not a new one in fact one would say one could say that it's the original use of these 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 molecules their, their original use was not as treatments for depression but it was uh, a means by which the the individual could communicate with the gods so this is um, um, the fundamental the original um, use of psychedelics was as spirituals no doubt about that and for many people whilst they they have taken on a more academic role as well now um, there's no doubt about it that for many people that is still their primary use 
And can you elaborate a little bit on the concept of ego dissolution and its uh, relevance to psychedelic research and experiences? Yes. So, so the ego, these the 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 sense of self, uh, uh, the sense of one as an individual um, having a relationship with the environment, but always in some way separate. Um, that is the basic idea of, of the ego. Um, we we understand now, not completely, but we have some understanding of uh, which parts of the brain are active, uh, uh, help to maintain this sense of self. Uh, there's a large-scale network in the brain called the default mode network, and we know that this network starts to break down under the influence of psychedelics, uh, as do other large-scale networks, uh, and the breakdown of this default mode network correlates well with what's called ego dissolution, so the loss of the sense of self, the loss of one's personal identity, uh, but also an experience called oceanic boundlessness, um, the, the, the loss of the, that uh, disconnection between yourself or the separation between yourself and the environment, so the idea of being enfolded into and becoming one with your environment. So there's no distinction between yourself uh, and your environment. These are two related, um, but often differentiated experiences with psychedelics. And for many, that is a profoundly spiritual, profoundly uh, important experience. Um, it can also be quite terrifying if you're not expecting it. Um, to suddenly have your that most fundamental of things for us, which is your sense of you, the sense of I, the feeling of I in relationship to everything else is, is, is a fundamental part of human conscious experience and human life. So having that fall away often quite dramatically and quite suddenly and the influence of a psychedelic is, can be quite shocking, quite terrifying. Um, so again, that's another small risk with these that you can experience states of consciousness that you're simply not prepared for. Um, but for many people, this is a something that they uh, aspire to. They want to achieve that state of unity with everything and become a point of, or become a field of consciousness uh, within greater reality. Uh, and that again, of course, connects to the spiritual aspect because this is in many ways one of the aims of many spiritual disciplines is to achieve that sense of unity that to lose to allow the the i the ego the self to kind of drop away uh, and to uh, uh, come into a much more close unified relationship with with all of reality speaking of spirituality mm. what are your beliefs in god and do you, like do you believe in god and then if yes you feel like <laughs> the entities that we encounter in these spiritual states of consciousness are angels or like what 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 is what are they um well do i believe in god i don't i don't i don't believe in it i mean i always respond to that question as well tell me what god is and i'll tell you if i believe in it <laughs> um so <laughs> it depends how you define it you know if i ask one person what they mean by god they might talk about the abrahamic god of the bible uh, whereas others will talk about you know brahman or something um uh, others would would have many different ideas of, of what god means so i don't know i don't i don't i certainly don't ascribe to any particular faith or any particular religious ideology at all um but i'm i am or have been aware at least for for many years of the the kind of the the remarkable fact that we're here at all that we are conscious and that we're these beings um that exist i mean that in itself is a is, is a remarkable thing so there is a, there is great awe and wonder at that fact alone um so i don't discount um, or I would say, uh, go as far as saying that I would be extremely surprised if there weren't other beings that are far more advanced than us. I think that's almost certainly true. And I think these beings, we would have no, we have no ability to comprehend, I think, uh, what these beings are or uh, what level they're at, what level of, of consciousness they might be existing at. So 
you know we we can call them gods we can call them angels i don't think the name actually is that important to me what we call them uh, i'm more interested in how we establish communication with them and and and, and um um establish some kind of relationship with them i guess but um yeah i avoid naming them and people like to do that and people tell me oh you're you're communicating with demons this is extremely bad uh, or these are angels or these are the seventh level devas or i don't know you know <laughs> there's all these different things um different labels people put on them but i avoid that largely because i'm not simply not qualified i don't know i don't know yeah, even how you would define a, a demon as such is I presumably quite negative but um or an angel so i don't know uh, what what these beings would be or how they would be experienced and i think it, it restricts i think exploration once you start to label them and say oh, this is a demon or this is an angel or this is uh, whatever um then it, it it hinders further progression so i, I keep an open mind i i, I accept that we're, we seem to be dealing with some kind of other intelligent being that's as i i am i'm willing to to say about them i think and where can people find your work uh i'll follow you on if you are on social media yeah so i'm i'm i post quite a lot on twitter so my twitter handle is alien insect um i also have a Substack, alien insect on drugs where i write regularly about the pharmacology and the chemistry and the neuroscience of, of psychedelics in particular but also other drugs so please subscribe to that uh, I also have a new book out reality switch technologies um, which is probably I think it is the most kind of detailed comprehensive guide to how psychedelics work in the brain from the level of the chemistry the drug receptor interactions through to changes on neural activity all the way through to changes in the structure and dynamics of your world model so if you really want to develop a deep understanding of how psychedelics all different classes of psychedelics as well not just the classic psychedelics like lsd how they work in the brain um, then reality switch technologies is probably the book that you want to read um and well what where in terms of like okay this is your book that you recommend any other authors or people in this field would you recommend saying you know if you're dipping your toes into understanding how psychedelics can affect your conscious mind uh wh where else would you lead them um i mean there have been many books that have been written um over the years i have some so one is it i can't find it uh, anyway so terence mckenna i mean he was if you're interested in dmt in particular i mean terence mckenna is a wonderful writer he's a wonderful speaker um he has some kind of rather far out ideas but if you're really interested in in dmt and its potential uh then someone terence mckenna is kind of has godlike status within the psychedelic world uh but also if you're interested in the chemistry uh, of these molecules then Alexander Shulgin um, the late master chemist who created hundreds really of, of new molecules and tried them all on himself so he has a two books uh, means I have known and loved and tryptamines I have known and loved Pical and Tikal uh, which are very famous um, and more recently uh, Michael Pollan uh, produced a wrote a, a wildly popular book uh, called how to change your mind which is written for the layman so anyone who's kind of interested in psychedelics and kind of how they work and um their potential therapeutic applications that's a it's a fairly good starting point before you get into the more kind of technical stuff such as my book or um terence mckenna's works or the works by shulgin uh, yeah i think that would be a pretty good start well, thank you so much for speaking with me. You're welcome.